If it scares you, said Seth Godin, it might be a good thing to try. Well, I can tell you I'm quaking in my boots, but there's no way for me but forward, because I'm Rav Mike Foyer, and this is a whole new story. I just want to give you a little last taste of the Jewish story before it goes offline for good. I say offline for good, but you can actually be part of a Jewish story live monthly subscription. Send me an email, ralphmikefoyer, gmail.com. Go to ralphmike.com or go to jewishstory.co. Either way, you'll start to see the advertisements. You can just send me a message. I want to connect you to the ongoing live weekly class starting in fall, plus a monthly interview with yours truly plumbing some of the depths of the Jewish story left untouched, as well as some unexciting territory yet to be explored. So stay tuned. It may be over, but we're not done with the Jewish story. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, good wherever you are. So we're starting a new section today. I'm pretty excited about it. It's the Galilean six classes on the three Roman Jewish wars. And I want you to think about this period, um, as I think I already said to you, as the crucible of Judaism. Right? I, I threw out a couple of classes ago this idea that there was no Judaism in the Second Temple, in the sense of a uh, universally agreed upon sort of form of religion as we know it. It's in deep process of formation. We've spoken about the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes. We're going to see early Christianity, even though in history we'll, we might reach the root of early Christianity today. I'm going to tell the story actually in the next season, and in in not next season, the next um, section. That'll probably be the last section we do on the emergence of rabbinic culture and Christianity together. But for now, I want you to think about this section on three Roman Jewish wars, spanning basically from 63 before the Common Era to 135 of the Common Era as the crucible. Right? And I even gave you this image of the idea that um, if you put a pot on the stove and you turn up the heat, it boils, put a lid on, it might boil over. If you weld the lid on, eventually it's going to explode. But before it explodes, if you give it enough strength, if it's enough of a vessel to hold the heat, it might actually go not just from solid liquid to gas, but to plasma. That sort of highly charged, intense potential of what's called the fourth state of matter. And that's the image I want you to see, because what we're going to speak about today is the formation of a Judean kingdom strong enough to hold that level of transformation and really evolution, not just for the Jewish story, but because of the role the Jewish story, of course, plays in Western culture as a whole, really, this is an evolutionary moment for Western culture as a whole. And I think that um, it, it's certainly a, a bit of divine sort of uh, grace that we're having this class today, not only on Zod Hanukkah, on the last day of Hanukkah, um, but of course on Christmas Day. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said there that, that I'll leave it in the background. Maybe it'll pop up here and there. So in order to pick up our story, I want to recall the um, image with which we close the Hasmonean kingdom, which if you made it to my father's yard site here or you listened to it, right, you, uh, we, we return to this image that when the last two members of the ruling Hasmonean house, the sons of Shlom Tzion, right, the, who was the queen who ruled after Alexander Yana, right, Yana was that peak of Hasmonean power. He dies in 76 before the Common Era. And his wife, Shlom Tzion, is the ruling queen of the Hasmonean house. She has two sons, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. Hyrcanus is the elder and the high priest, but he's also quite weak-willed. And his brother, Aristobulus, attempts to seize the throne from him after their mother dies. Right? And we spoke about how the Gemara described this strange situation where right, um, Hyrcanus was on the inside and Aristobulus was on the outside, and every day even though they were fighting each other with a terrible siege, since they were both priests, there was this deal that they would sort of lower coins down to pay for the daily offerings and the besiegers would give them the, the two goats for the daily offering, if you recall that image, right? We pointed out that, that in this strange moment of loss of cultural sovereignty, the man who was wise in Greek knowledge and spoke to them in the Greek language told them, you morons, send them up a pig. And then the whole thing will fall apart. Meaning step outside of your little parochial Jewish story in which you're struggling for power, but you still hold by the rules and play the game like a real world power, right? Now, of course, that's what happens in that story. And we say the siege is broken, but don't forget, 
who is the pig in the rabbinic mind? Of course, it's the sages telling this story of the end of the Hasmonean kingdom. The pig is Rome. And the history which lies behind that symbolic representation of the end of the Hasmonean era, right, is that the, when those two brothers were struggling, Hyrcanus II, legitimate elder brother and high priest, right, fighting his brother Aristobulus, who had seized the throne. Those two brothers are fighting. In the year 67, it begins, and the civil war goes for a few years. In the year 63, the whole Mediterranean region changes when Pompey, the Roman general, comes east, right? In Roman history, there's a triumvirate of, of Pompey, or Pompey, 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 Caesar, and Lepidus. Nobody ever remembers who Lepidus was, so we don't have to talk about him. But it, it, this is the period in Roman history where basically Caesar went west, Pompey went east, and each of them just conquered and conquered to gather enough power to eventually have that showdown with each other that led to Caesar being triumphant, right? But And so Pompey comes to the east and he conquers Syria. He decides that the Seleucid kingdom, which we've been following the history of with the whole Maccabean revolt, that it was just the passe. And he conquers Syria, makes Syria with Damascus as its capital, a Roman province. Now this instantly turns Rome into the regional power. Because this is a proper part of the empire now, will be ruled directly by Roman governors, right? Where the legions will be stationed. That means Rome is not only able to project power wherever it wants, but it has a direct imperial interest on the northern border of the Judean Hasmonean kingdom. Now the brothers turn to Pompey to try to decide their fight. Each one tries to convince them they're right, hoping that Pompey will come in on their side and break the stalemate between them and the siege. Pompey tries to stay out of it. He's too smart to get involved. The, the Romans have known since Julius Caesar first reached out, not sorry, since Judah Maccabee first reached out to the Romans during his struggles with the Seleucids, the Romans have known that the Judeans are a troublesome lot. Pompey tries to stay out of this civil war, but in the end, two things draw him in. One is the sort of um, political maneuverings of Hyrcanus's advisor, Antipater. Now, Antipater is a very interesting character, and he really is the beginning of our story today. Who is Antipater? Antipater was the governor of Idumea under Alexander Yanai, under that last powerful Hasmonean king. You recall that Idumea, Edom, is that southern province where Hebron was its capital, is that southern province which was forcibly converted to Judaism by John Hyrcanus. And we spoke at the time about how that subjugation and forced conversion laid the seeds for serious problems in the Hasmonean kingdom. And those problems are going to begin to bear fruit in the person of Antipater. Now, Antipater is a practicing Jew. He goes to the Jewish temple. He does more or less what, whatever it is that Jews do, at least publicly in their observance outside of the temple in his day. But he's married to a woman of Arab origin. He's not married to a Judean woman. And at this point, we've got to remember, Jew, Jew and Judean aren't quite the same thing. They're starting to slide back and forth. But really, if I were going to give a title today's class, I would call it, is Herod king of Judea? King of the Jews, both or neither. So Antipater is the father of Herod. He's the one who brings the Idumean power close to the throne. Antipater, like I said, he was governor of Idumea during Alexander Yanai. When Yanai dies and Shlomzion, the queen, takes over, he becomes, he moves to Jerusalem and becomes her key advisor. When she dies, he's already become the masterful advisor of Hyrcanus II. Remember, elder son, high priest, weak personality. So Antipater basically rules from behind the throne. Right. Um, and so when the civil war breaks out, Antipater was actually in the process of making a deal with the Nabataean Arab kings of the south to invade and support Hyrcanus when suddenly Rome's on the horizon. Antipater is the one who is the first to realize the absolute truth of politics in the region, which is Rome is here to stay. If you want to understand the power of Herod, in addition to his personal characteristics, which we will discuss. The number one source of power was what he inherited from his father, which is accept the fact that Rome is here to stay. And therefore, every decision you make, every policy, every pursuit of power must be taken in light of the fact that Rome is here to stay and they are unstoppable. Antipater is the first to realize this and he internalizes it most deeply, right? And therefore he is able to succeed in his appeal on behalf of Hercules to Pompey to decide the civil war in their favor. I said there were two reasons. The other one is that the Aristobulus was just stubborn. 
wouldn't give up. In the end, Pompey marches his legion on Jerusalem in support of Hyrcanus, who is indeed the elder brother, high priest, and rightful king, after all. Um, it's not that Pompey didn't support him, he just wanted to do it without military, right? And um, he, he marches on Jerusalem, conquers Jerusalem in an act of brutal slaughter. I gave you in the source book, which I hope everyone got. If not, you know, check your email, I sent it out. Um, the, a slaughter of Jerusalem. And especially because Aristobulus held out in the temple, as is described by the rabbis in that uh, midrash we looked at. Um, the priests continue doing the service as Pompey's men enter. And Pompey's men, together with the Jews who are opposed, basically it's a wholesale massacre. Now, we'll, we'll speak a little bit more about that in a second. But what I want to understand is that in that moment, both Hyrcanus and Antipater pledge what's called, um, pledge what's called Hedis loyalty to Pompey personally, and they become clients to Pompey's patronage. Now, this is important because the role that Judea is going to play is as a client state of the Roman Empire. But the way that really works in the beginning is personal relationship with Pompey, who as conqueror represents the empire in and of himself, makes with Hercules and Antipater, who are his personal clients, sworn to his loyalty. Now, let's look at what Pompey does to the Judean state. And to do so, we want to return to our three dimensions of sovereignty. Remember, territorial, economic, and cultural. Territorial is easy to understand. Pompey has come to conquer, but he has no interest in making Judea part of the Roman Empire. The Romans see the Jews as stubborn, religiously fanatic. Remember, the Romans are, are as disgusted by the Jews' refusal of Hellenism as the Greeks were. They see the Jews as barbarians as well, just useful barbarians, right? Furthermore, the Romans have seen the Judean kingdom as really this, a menace to peace and prosperity in the Eastern Mediterranean region for a hundred years. It's just that the fights between the Judeans and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, et cetera, were useful to the Romans ultimately. That's why they actually fostered sometimes the conflict. But now that Rome wants to be in charge, the Judeans as a problematic element wedge between these two Hellenistic states is no longer of use to them. So what, what Pompey is going to do is he's going to reduce Judea to a client state, which is part of his policy of building what, what he what is called the inner ring of client states, right? Rome, it could have a world map, but Rome advances west under Julius Caesar all the way up to Britain. East and northeast, Rome is checked by the Parthian Empire in the east, so basically the rebirth of the ancient Persian Empire, right? It's not really a rebirth, it's just a re reconstitution of the ancient Persian Empire. The only world power at this point which has military force enough to actually oppose Rome. And then to the northeast are what, what the Romans call the northern tribesmen, right? Basically, um, the nomadic peoples who periodically raid and therefore are, are problematic, but they aren't a real challenge to imperial, imperial power. So in order to solidify the security of the Roman provinces like Syria to the west, Pompey sets up a ring of client states, not directly ruled by Rome, but completely beholden to Rome, right? Uh, so he wants to minimize Judea's power in order to prevent them from sort of having their own policy, but he can't completely do without that power because, as I said, they're right there on the border with Parthia. So to incorporate Judea, is non-desirable because the Jews are already seen as an indigestible element. And I want you to remember that. The Jews are an indigestible element in the Roman Empire. Even though Judaism is a, is a, is a officially recognized religion, which is something we'll speak more about when we, when we turn to what's happening to the Jews in the diaspora, but it's an officially recognized religion. Therefore, Jews aren't forced to take place in public acts of worship. Sometimes they're even excused from military service or certain aspects of military service that involve idolatrous sort of uh, acts of, you know, giving thanks, etc. Even though the Jews are officially recognized, nonetheless, they are um, looked down upon at best. Barbaric, stubborn, it may sound familiar. Um, so, so what's he going to do? He can't strip Judea completely powerless. Remember how big the Hasmonean state was. Right? We talked about it. from John Hyrcanus through Yanai, all this conquest and expansion and out to the coast and to the eastern bank of the Jordan, Idumea and the Galilee. Right? So he can't switch strip into powerless list because, again, it leaves a hole in his eastern frontier. 
So what he does, he basically cuts away all of the Hasmonean conquests. The whole coast is removed from Jaffa down to Gaza. The eastern conquests on the eastern side of the Jordan are made into autonomous Greek-style cities, something called the Decapolis, if people are familiar with the history there. But it doesn't matter. They're, they're made autonomous cities that have their own, basically, city council in the Greek polis style. He also strips away Shomron, right, the Samaritan province, which we such a long-standing battle between Judea and Shomron. He leaves two things, the core of actual mountains of Judea surrounding Jerusalem and the Galilee. Very interesting that the Galilee was heavily Judaized and it had been conquered basically at the same time as Idumea. And it's become very Judaized, but it's physically cut off from Judea. Now, of course, which Judean is going to come from the Galilee and cause some you know, shake up in the region? That would be Jesus of Nazareth. Right? And it's going to be very important to remember that, that Judea includes Galilee it, it as its religion. They're Jews. They don't actually live in Judea. You guys follow? So we're already seeing, like I said, these, this drift between the, the geographic political definitions and the religious cultural definitions. In terms of territorial sovereignty, Judea is stripped down to its Judean core. The conquest of the Hasmoneans are removed. Hyrcanus is no longer king. You remember Alexander Yanai was king and Shalom was queen. Um, he's still high priest, but the Romans call him an ethnarch, which is a term within the Roman terminology that basically a glorified prince. He's independent, but his, his territorial sovereignty is very limited. Roman legions in Syria and with the Bavani, we Pompey has shown that he will march and destroy whatever's in his head. Um, economic sovereignty, one word is just remember that the Rome wasn't just conquering these states for its political purposes, but also for their financial. Pompey instituted a whole tribute system on Judea that enriched himself personally enormously and enriched the Roman Empire. And of course, control of the land in a culture which is based on subsistence agriculture is the ultimate expression of economic sovereignty. And this will become one of the issues as we go forward as Roman taxes and tribute raise, as the land is increasingly acquired by either Roman colonies, Greek-speaking colonists, or the Jews are simply driven out, right? Economic sovereignty will lead to sort of hardship, which will fuel rebellion. So we have territorial. Economic is on the ropes. Territorial has been restructured, but it's still kind of there. Client state, better off than they were as a province of the Persian Empire, but not independent truly like they were as the Hasmonean Kingdom. Now, last but not least, culture. What, what happened? Now, like I said, when Pompey reinstated Hyrcanus II as high priest, um, he, he basically played to the popular opinion of the people. At the same time, his conquest of Jerusalem was so brutal, and he actually entered the Holy of Holies when, when he conquered the temple. Right? Josephus, in your source book, you see Josephus' description of it. It appears in many places. There's actually a book of Apocrypha. Remember, we talked about the, the, the Apocrypha, the books that were preserved in the Greek translation of the Bible, but didn't make it into the rabbinic Hebrew Masoretic text. The book of the Apocrypha called the Psalms of Solomon written in the first century before the Common Era, which in coded language describes Pompey's entry into the Holy of Holies. They call him a dragon and the scourge of God. And it points the finger at the punishment for the wicked ways of the Hasmonean priests. Now, why do I tell you this? First of all, it's fun because there's a book called the Psalms of Solomon, who knew, right? But, but second of all, to tell you that the messianic ferment that many of these apocryphal works represent is, is hitting an inflection point. Now that Rome is here, the kingdom is going to get stronger in a political sense for a short period, but in a sense of cultural legitimacy, once the Hasmoneans go, both the, the political power of the Judean kingship and even the priesthood in the temple are starting to gradually lose their significance, which will not only lead to messianic speculation about end of days and the return of a new kingdom, but will also gradually lead to the formation of a true religion which is how Judaism will survive in exile without a king or a temple. You guys understand that, that piece there? So this is another blow to the legitimacy of the temple um, and more fuel on the flames of messianic expectation that some cataclysmic apocalypse mm -hmm. is coming to make the wrongs right once again. Um, the, basically, when it comes to cultural sovereignty, what I want you to think of is cultural ferment. 
it's true that the temple has been violated, but it's in the hands of legitimate priests. You know, uh, we're disparaged and looked down upon by the Romans as barbarians, but we have a thriving literary culture and both both Hellenistic Judaism down based in Alexandria and rabbinic Judaism, you know, Judean Judaism here in Jerusalem. So there's enormous amounts happening. Question is, toward what end? So those are the three elements of sovereignty as the impact of Pompeii. You guys with me? All right, good. So we're now going to see the evolution of this client state. Remember, Pompeii, as I said, decides the civil war in favor of Hercules and Antipater because Pompeii saw in Antipater, Hercules' advisor, someone he could really work with. So even though Hercules is nominally in charge, I pointed out to you that both Hercules and Antipater swear fealty to Pompeii. And Antipater is set up to really be the power behind the throne. Now, um, in the year 57, only six years after Pompeii conquered, um, the Gabinus, who's the Roman governor of Syria, he, he gets tired of putting out the constant rebellions that are happening in Judea. And this is what I want you to know. From the minute Pompeii conquers and sets up what he sees to be a nice little client state situation, the Judeans show themselves to be completely and absolutely intolerable. What? So what does Gabinus do? He decides that Judea is now the worst possible size. Even though Pompeii stripped it down, on one hand, it's big enough that it can encourage dreams of independence and therefore rebellion. On the other hand, it's small enough that he can't be bothered sending a legion into Jerusalem every time some you know, guy decides he's not going to pay his taxes, rallies 10 of his neighbors, burns some crops, and, and, and says death to the Romans. You, you know what I mean? It's just not worth it. At the same time, to leave the state in a, to leave Judea in a constant state of semi-rebellion is not safe. So therefore, Gabinus actually breaks up Judea even further. He breaks up the remaining kingdom into five different districts. It doesn't matter if you remember that. It matters for us for two reasons. First of all, these districts are now ruled um, by councils of local notables, aristocracy, etc. And Josephus says those councils are called, uh, how does he say it? Uh, he calls them. I wrote it down. Oh, synhedrions. A synhedrion, which is the Greek version of the term that we know as Sanhedrin, this is the first appearance of that term. Right? It, people with some Jewish knowledge know that Sanhedrin is seen as the high court of Jewish law. It had its seat on the Temple Mount. It's considered the ultimate court of appeal in a structure that the sages eventually developed as a true appeals court, where you had local courts, and there was a court they could go to Jerusalem, and even in Jerusalem there was a higher court, and the final high, high court sat on the Temple Mount, it's the Sanhedrin. Now, we spoke previously about um, this Gerusia, so the council of, of um, landed aristocracy, priestly caste elite, and then the sort of knowledge elite of the Pharisees of the Torah. So this is the next iteration of the Gerusia, and this is the first time, like I said, that we have an official designation of the Sanhedrin. Which is not to say that the way that the sages back project the council of elders all the way back to, to Moses and, and further even, right? it's not to say there isn't some continuity, but this is the appearance of the term. Um, that's one reason it's significant. The other reason it's significant is that, that by replacing a centralized prince with local councils, right, the aristocracy becomes the battleground for both territorial and cultural sovereignty. This is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees, will, and the essence to a lesser degree, will really duke out what is Judaism, who controls the temple, who is able to influence the future of the Jewish people within their national entity. Okay, so Antipater was not pleased with this breakup of the kingdom that he had helped maneuver. He keeps Idumea as his personal fief. Remember, he has fealty to the Romans himself. They gift him with Idumea, which is where he's from. Um, but he's no longer the power behind the throne like he wanted to be. So the next phase of evolution of the Judean client state is closely bound up with the transformation of Rome from a republic to an empire. Now, I'm not going to try to teach Roman, Roman history here. But it is crucial just to know that um, the evolution of the, of, the, of the Republic into the empire was taking place in the, in the second half of the first century of the Common Era, sorry, before the Common Era, which is the same period that Herod's kingdom is coming into being, right? 
when when Pompey and Julius Caesar are done, you know, Pompey going east to conquer and Caesar going to Gaul and etc. West, they finally face off against each other in about 50 before the Common Era. Um, Caesar wins at the Battle of Pharsalus in 48 before the Common Era. And when, when Julius Caesar wins, he inherits all of Pompey's patronage. Now, that might have gone poorly for Antipater and Hyrcanus back there in, in the remnants of Judea, because they had backed Pompey as their legitimate patron, right? But the, the, the story goes that Caesar went on to conquer Egypt. He got distracted by Cleopatra, which apparently was a problem that he was not the only one that had. Um, and while he was chasing Pompey in Egypt, he lost track. He was caught off of guard. And an armed uprising happened in Alexandria. And, and Caesar apparently was in danger of actually being killed by this uprising. Antipater, who is stationed, if you can picture, not so far to the east in Idumea, saves him in the nick of time. He shows up with 1,500 troops. And most importantly, he incites the Jews of Alexandria, who are quite a strong community, to rise up in Caesar's defense. In return, this just shows you how Antipater, his parents' father, really works the Roman angle. In return, Caesar confirms Hyrcanus as high priest in Jerusalem, but he makes Antipater what he calls the epitropus of Judea, basically the regent. He gives him the official capacity to be the power behind the throne, right? He also allows Hyrcanus and Antipater to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, uh, meaning he returns to them a kingdom. He gets rid of this sort of the local council piece. And here, and he makes Antipas' two sons, Faisal and Herod, governors of Jerusalem, Faisal's in Jerusalem, and of the Galilee. So in the year 47, now our character Herod finally comes on the scene. He's about 25 years old, um, and he is governor of the Galilee. He is known as a charismatic, handsome, you know, wealthy, powerful young man, and fanatically loyal to the Roman notion of law and order. Now, as governor of the Galilee, Herod faces a real problem because there is a man named Hezekiah who has been terrorizing the countryside. Now, depending on who you ask, Hezekiah is a, is a Hebrew nationalist fighting to throw off the Roman yoke, refusing to pay their tributes and driving pagan foreigners from Jewish land. Or he's a tax rebel, a brigand who will waylay anybody on the road, and somebody who's persecuting pagans because of his fanatical religious beliefs. I'll let you choose which one he is. It doesn't really matter. What Herod does is he swiftly captures Hezekiah and the other leaders of this rebellion and summarily executes them. Now, the populace is quite pleased because he's brought law and order. But you know who's not pleased? is that council of nobles, the Sanhedrin, back in Jerusalem. Because Jewish law, unlike Roman law, demands a trial before execution and reserves the right of decision of life or death to the religious court, not to the political courts. So Herod has crossed all boundaries, but he's done it in service of Roman law and order. So Josephus actually tells a story of a confrontation between, uh, between Herod and the Sanhedrin. It's, a, it's interesting. I don't think we learned the Gemara, but the Gemara presents more or less the exact same confrontation in the person of Alexander Yanai and the, uh, and the Sanhedrin. Just one of those interesting places where Josephus tells stories. Josephus, of course, writing four, three, four hundred years before the sages of the Gemara, at the, at the least. Right? So he's often telling the story in a more classically historical mold, whereas the sages are interested in lumping together sort of historical archetypes for the more of the moral message. But this is important because it illuminates for us the dynamic of power into which Herod steps, right? Herod thinks he's done what's right. He certainly served Roman interests, right? But the, a, a subset of the people complained to Hyrcanus, saying, hey, aren't you in charge? Why is this guy murdering Jews in the Galilee? And to the Sanhedrin saying, hey, justice wasn't done. So the Sanhedrin orders Herod to come to Jerusalem to stand trial. Um, at first, he's going to refuse. But, but he gets the advice, basically, you know, play along. But instead of coming dressed in black and showing himself as submissive to the court, which was the tradition, he comes dressed in the royal purple. In his hand is a letter from Sextus Caesar, the governor of Syria, in which both the Sanhedrin and Hyrcanus 
are threatened with dire consequences if Herod isn't acquitted. Now, he's completely absolved of any crimes, but not because he hasn't done anything wrong, but because he has in his hand the power of Rome, thus proving to Herod that truth that his father taught him, that Rome is here to stay, and they're the only power that really matters. Now, Herod walks out of this confrontation with the Sanhedrin victorious, right, because the governor of the Roman province is behind him. But he also walks out of it with a clear sense that he'll never be accepted by this aristocracy, which is mostly Sadducee at this point, and the Sanhedrin, which they dominate. And since Herod isn't one to leave a competitive power base within any kingdom that he rules, it doesn't bode well for the future of that council. So that was in 47. Uh, in 44, the Roman world's order is, sh is shaken up by the assassination of Julius Caesar by Brutus, right? Of course, I'm guessing people know if you wear the Ides of March and all that. If you don't, you can look it up. But for our purposes, Caesar had been the patron of Antipater and Hyrcanus, right? Um, and the in the triumvirate rule, the, again, three-person rule that emerges after Caesar's assassination, Mark Anthony takes control of the East. So once again, Antipater and Hyrcanus are the clients of Mark Anthony. Although in truth, Antipater is killed disturbances in the aftermath of the of Caesar's death. So now Herod and his brother Faisal are named Petrarchs, like petty princes by Mark Anthony, placed there to support the symbolic rule of Hyrcanus II. Right? Basically, Mark Anthony doesn't want to take away the symbol of Jewish national power, which is the Hasmonean, but he wants Faisal and Herod, who he sees as loyal Roman servants, having the real power. Right? Now, remember, I told you that Judea is on the border with the Parthian Empire, right? this latest version of the Persian Empire, which even though it's, it's poorly organized politically, it, it packs a military punch. It's the only real challenge to Roman imperial power, which is why Rome never makes it further. We'll speak in a few classes down the line of Trajan, the last expanding emperor, and his attempt to conquer the Parthians. But for now, in the year 40, you guys still with me in our in our time sequence, right? Herod has been. What you you got a question there, Rivka, or was that that was a it was an affirmation? Okay, um, I'm just your your screens are a little choppy, so there's a little bit of a delay. But um, so Herod was governor of the Galilee in 47. He has his confrontation with the Sanhedrin, which he wins, and he'll take his revenge later. And then in the aftermath of Caesar's assassination, he becomes a direct client of Mark Anthony and becomes uh, tetrarch, basically petty prince, together with his brother, in support of the symbolic leadership of Hyrcanus II. The Hasmoneans are still the face of Jewish national rule. But now in the year 40, the Parthians invade from the east. right? And, and they, in order to make trouble within Judea, they bring back Antigonus, Hyrcanus's rebellious brother that Pompey had driven out but never killed. Right? They bring back Antigonus, um, they, they, they seize the throne from Hyrcanus. Faisal actually commits suicide. Hyrcanus is taken captive, brought back to Babel. They cut his ears off in order that he'll never be able to serve as high priest again because it's a, a desecration of the high priest and he's now a, he's got a moon, he's got a, a, a flaw, right? Herod manages to escape Jerusalem after holding off the Parthians for a while and he escapes back to Rome. Now, there are many questions about what happened when Herod went back to Rome. Nominally, his goal was to get the Romans to back Hyrcanus to be king once again. But Hyrcanus is a captive in Parthia. Herod's the man on the scene. What we can say for sure is that some point around the year 37, through the influence of his patron Mark Anthony, the Roman Senate declares Herod king of Judea. And there's a famous scene which is described by, by Roman historians of Herod walking out triumphantly from the Senate with, with Octavian on one side, who will soon be Augustus Caesar, and Mark Anthony on the other, with the consuls of the Senate in front of him all going to the capital to offer thanks to their pagan gods that Herod has now been appointed king of Judea. See how complicated his personality is going to be? That doesn't land well with the Jews, but right now he's king in name only. However, Rome gives him two legions, in 37, he goes back to reconquer Jerusalem. It takes him three years. It takes him three years, but by year 34, Herod and the Romans finally capture Jerusalem, 
They get Antigonus he's sent to Rome to be executed. He rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Right? Probably most significantly, he builds the Antonia Fortress. If you guys have ever taken the tour of the old city, it's uh, in the Herodian Quarter, um, or actually it's above the Herodian Quarter, but it, it was the, basically the Antonia Fortress was on the northwest corner of the temple enclosure today. If you stand down at the Kotel, you're of course at the Western Wall, so it's basically directly up and to your left are the base of this Antonia fortress. It was enormous. And it, it, its purpose really symbolizes the whole posture of Herod's kingdom. It was meant to be a reincarnation of the Acre, which was a sort of military colony fortress that the Seleucid Greeks had built right above the temple in order to dominate it. Except this was much bigger. That one had been destroyed by the Hasmoneans. Antonia is much bigger. It's going to serve as the base for Roman power, looking down on the Temple Mount for another hundred years. And it's got a Roman garrison stationed in it. It's literally a military colony in the heart of Jerusalem. And according to Josephus, Herod actually took the, the, the eight garments, the eight vestments of the high priest, and he kept them locked up every night in the Antonia Fortress because he knew that the Jews couldn't do certain parts of the temple without those vestments. So they were basically held hostage, according to Josephus, who says that he believed while he had them in his custody, the people would make no, no complications against him. Right? He held those things hostage. Right? Herod then, in an attempt to shore up his legitimacy, because remember, he's the son of an Idumean who married a non-Judean woman, an Arab woman, which means even on his father's side, people look a little scant at his, his Jewish legitimacy. On his mother's side, and matrilineal descent is the way which the majority of the Jews are being taught at this point already. Right? He comes from a foreign nation. But what does he do? He marries the last woman of the Hasmonean house. Miriam, who is Hyrcanus' daughter, he'd been engaged for actually for many years. And he does this and succeeds in enhancing his legitimacy in the eyes of the Judeans. Um, also, he had a thing for beautiful women. He'll have 10 wives throughout his, uh, throughout his rule. Right, and 10 wives and many more sons is going to cause him a lot of problems at the end of his life, which we won't get to today. We'll finish off his life probably next week. Right now, it's important to remember that despite how I presented the Hasmonean house as descending toward a Greek sort of Hellenistic kingdom that they had originally opposed, they still remain the standard of legitimate kingship in the mind of Judea. In fact, the longer that Rome sticks around, the, the better the Hasmoneans will look in retrospect, which you know, everybody's kind of that way, right? They were bad while they were here. But turns out Rome is worse. So therefore we start to romanticize and glorify, oh, the good old days. Now, it's, it's, it's funny because Herod inherited from his father Antipater one political standard, which is Rome is here to stay and all decisions need to be taken in context of Roman power. The other perspective, which is going to continue to rock the, this uh, through, straight through the Roman Jewish wars, is basically all you need is one Hasmonean to claim royal status, two people to hear them do it, and boom, you've got an incipient rebellion, right? That the Judeans just keep trying to fight, and Herod just keeps saying to them, you're going to kill us all. You're going to destroy us. Rome's not going anywhere. They will crush you, right? And he tries to keep a lid, in my image of keeping that strong lid, on this sort of ever-increasing pressure of the situation, and he succeeds. By the way, Herod's undergoing a rebirth amongst Israeli nationalists today, you're unaware. There are many who really see him as a political genius who was the only one who could hold together a kingdom strong enough to allow us to gain the cultural fabric which we actually achieved, which gave us the power to survive exile. It's a whole reworking of Herod's memory, which happens constantly. We'll speak about that next week a little bit more. For now, I want you to get the facts. Well, you know, most. Um, okay. So, so here we are. By 34, as I said, Herod has established himself both physically, he rules Jerusalem. He's got two legions there to back him. He builds the Antonia Fortress to control the city, right? He marries the last woman of the Hasmonean house to give himself sort of the true Judean royal stature. Um, and he gets dealt another bad blow by Roman politics. His patron, Mark Anthony, goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Octavian. And in the year 31, before the Common Era, Octavian defeats Mark Antony at the Sea Battle of Actium, if people are familiar with Roman history. If you're not, 
this is where most Roman historians place the transition between the Republic and the Empire. Anyway, when, when Octavian defeats Mark Anthony at Actium in the year 31, within about two years, Octavian will already declare Augustus, the princeps, what we would just call an emperor in simple language, right? Now, that's fine. That's for Roman history. And, and it's just fascinating that the Jewish story is so bound up on the inside of the inside of the Roman history. But for present purposes, again, what happens is all about the personal client patron relationship. Herod was Mark Anthony's patron, and he served him well. He built the Antonio Fortress to glorify him. He gave Mark Anthony lots of money and even military support in his fight against Octavian. Now he's got to switch sides again. And here we see the mark of Herod's both political genius and what is reported by many historians as an incredible personal charm. Right? Herod mastered the two things that might make a modern-day Israeli politician um, quite, uh, quite successful. One. He had the ability to speak to the leaders of the world in a way in which was both submissive and compelling. Sound like anyone you know? The other thing we're going to speak about shortly is he understood that if it went in doubt, build, build, build. That as long as the economy functions and people feel that the country is growing, they will forgive you a multitude of sins. So in terms of the first and his ability to speak both submissively but, but um, sort of straight-faced and to charm power, as soon as Herod finds out that Octavian is one, that his patron Mark Anthony has been killed, and that his political future is, let's just say, hanging in the balance, he does two things. He, he brings Hyrcanus, who is nominally the, you know, the only competitor for rule, and he executes him. So that if the Romans decide to get rid of Herod, there's no obvious successor, right? And this, by the way, is a pattern that Herod will pursue for the rest of his life. Anytime he feels threatened, one of the first things he'll do is execute anyone he sees as a possible replacement for him. Again, might sound familiar. I mean, execution is a harsh term for what happens in today's politics. But in terms of getting rid of anyone who could ever be a possible replacement, there's, there's a character that's emerging here from the shadows. I'll leave it again to your political imagination to see what I'm talking about. If you're not sure, you can send me a chat. Maybe I'll answer you later. Um, but he executes Hyrcanus making sure no one else is there to make any claim to the throne. And then he sails right away to Rhodes, to the island of Rhodes where Octavian is celebrating his victory. He's still, by the way, fighting, but he's celebrating the victory. And in what's recorded by Josephus is a brilliant speech, although remembering, of course, historians of the antiquity didn't actually take down verbatim speeches, but it's reasonable to believe that it was in substance, if not in style, accurate. He doesn't apologize for being Mark Anthony's client, for being the client of Octavian's enemy. On the contrary, he boasts his loyalty to Mark Anthony and promises that he'll have the same loyalty to his new patron, who is now master of the Roman Empire. It's a great move. Octavian is very impressed, not only by his chutzpah, right, but by the power that he can wield. Because Octavian has a weak eastern border. He needs Judea more than ever. Therefore, he confirms Herod as king. And not only that, but he rolls back the clock and returns all the provinces that have been stripped by Pompeii and then by Gabinus and by the Senate, he, he gives back the coast from Jaffa all the way down to Gaza. He gives back Samaria. He gives back a good chunk of the territory that Hasmoneans had conquered on the eastern bank of Judea. He gives Jericho. Basically, Octavian returns to Herod a state which is a Judean state, which is almost the same size as what the Hasmoneans had conquered. And we have to understand why. This is not simply uh, imperial largesse, nor is it gratitude for Herod's sudden and last minute support, you know, switching sides from Mark Anthony after he was defeated. No, this is political strategy. Like I said, number one, Octavian needs a strong client state to oppose the Parthians in Judea. They just invaded 10 years ago, and they're only getting strong, right? So he also, however, wants to water down the Hebrew nationalism, right? To leave Judea as just a Judean core will mean that they're always fighting to return their own independence. Instead, what does he do? He adds all these Hellenized provinces and appoints a Hellenized king who's his personal client, who's not so clear that he's Jewish, or at least Judean. You understand? He's, Herod is now personally beholden to Octavian. He rules a country, a state, 
which is made up not just of the Judean core, but all these Hellenistic provinces. He can now balance the power of the constantly incipient Jewish rebellion, right? And end up as a powerful and clever ruler of this multifaceted state. Okay, we have 15 minutes left. We're doing pretty well. You guys with me? I have the chat open, by the way, if, um, if people either are loose folks or if you want clarifications. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep telling the story. Okay. So Herod now is in control, in control of this revitalized Judean state and reconstituting size. He focuses, as I said, on the economy to consolidate his power. He does a few things. He introduces the act in games, basically a form of what we would call Olympic, you know, Greek-style games every four years. Actium is reference to Augustus's victory at Actium, right? Um, there, there, he does in Judea to be held every four years. A lot of money, pours money in there. He also funds games elsewhere and other projects outside of Judea because as, as Octavian's client, that's part of his role, to use his money to support the sort of status of his patron. Um, he also rebuilds the capital of the Sumerian province and renames it Sebaste, which is the Greek word for Augustus. This is the way it works in the ancient world. When you're a client, you build things, you name them after your patron. Now, there at Sebaste, Herod exercises his pagan side. In Judea, he had to be very careful. It at least looked like a Judean king in order to maintain peace in his streets. But Sebaste, which is, remember, is only 15, 20 miles north, maybe 30 miles north of, of Jerusalem, but it might as well be another world in the heart of the, of the Samaritan mountains. There he builds a temple to Roma, which is the patron goddess of Rome, and builds the temple to Augustus himself, right? And it becomes a military colony. Sebastia is where Herod now has his, his ready mercenary army in case he runs into any problems with his own Judean subjects, right? And he goes on a building spree, right? We'll, we'll talk about other things that he builds maybe later. But, but just to give you an example, although how, how um, powerful Herod was personally and how it worked to be a client of Rome in favor of the Judeans, in 24, only 10 years after he'd taken power, a terrible famine hit Judea, right? And I spoke to you a couple of times about the desperation of the, of the subsistence farmer whose whole life revolves around producing more calories than they consume. So a couple of years without rain could reduce Judea to abject poverty. So the famine hit Judea, and it lasted two years. And what, what did Herod do? He called upon the prefect of Egypt. Remember, Egypt was a direct province of the Roman Empire, not just of the empire, it was a direct, directly controlled by the emperor himself. And the prefect then was a man named Petronius, who was willing to export massive amounts of grain to Judea for a fraction of the cost, but paid for personally by Herod. Which is, this was like an unprecedented logistical challenge in, in late antiquity, for Herod to buy massive amounts of grain from Egypt, ship them to Judea, distribute it to the population in order that they wouldn't starve, Right, And why was Egypt willing to do that? Because Petronius was also a client of Augustus. And two clients of the same patron have to help each other. So I'm giving you this as an example that not only did Herod just build, 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 right, in order to make sure the economy grew and therefore people were at least well-fed, but he used his personal wealth and power to ensure the economic and political stability of Judean state at a time when that was not an easy task. Um, so at the same time, there was a brutal reckoning that went on between Herod and any opposing powers from the minute he took control. As I said, he had that bad taste in his mouth against the Sanhedrin because they wanted to condemn him for his suppression of the tax revolt, national revolt, brigandry, whatever you would call it, in the Galilee back in 47. So once he became king in 34, he basically murdered every member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Josephus said he left two alive claims that it was Shmai and Apollyon who, who became some of the great rabbinic leaders. For our purposes, what he did was he destroyed the Sadducean aristocracy that was really in control of the, of the, um, the Sanhedrin at the time. Now, he will eventually create a new aristocracy. He's going to import priestly families from Babel. In fact, he brings in a Sadducite priest. Remember, the house of Sadduk is, according to the religious Jews, like the real ones who follow the prophecies of Ikazkiel, they're the ones, the Sadducite house are the ones that are supposed to be high priests. The Hasmoneans have replaced them. 
which was accepted by the people because the Hasmoneans were seen to be these sort of national saviors. But now Herod reaches out to Babel, to the Jews in Parthia, brings in high priest material who have zero connections. They're nobodies with good yichas. He has yichas where they have good, they've got good lineage, but they have no political power. And he recreates his own subservient priestly aristocracy um, to replace the one that he's completely murdered. What about the Pharisees? No, in the, in the beginning, apparently Herod actually got on quite well with the Pharisees, right? They were, in fact, Josephus reports that when Herod laid siege to Jerusalem in his initial attempt to become king, that the, that the two leading sages actually wanted to open the gates to him. And there are scholars who say that Josephus is speaking about Hillel and Shammah. Hillel's story, by the way, we're going to tell next week because he's the parallel story to Herod, right? So meaning the Pharisees, by and large, are passively supportive of Herod in the beginning. Not the least of which reasons is that they're grassroots scholars. Remember, we're talking about they serve the poor and the underprivileged. Therefore, the direct benefits that, that Herod brings to the working poor, both by sort of construction projects and by his imports of grain, et cetera, they see that impact on the populace far more than the aristocracy. They see it and they care about it. Right? Furthermore, Herod had no interest in interfering with their religious you know, law stuff. He didn't care. And they, as long as he kept a low profile and didn't do anything blatantly um, uh, pagan <laughs> to, to tick people off. Although, in the long run, there's a big conflict coming with the Pharisees. Because there are two elements of Pharisaic culture that will conflict with Herod. Right? One is the, um, the uh, messianic element within the rabbinic camp. Right? Messianism, of course, Jesus of Nazareth will be a competitor for being king of the Jews <laughs> with Herod. Right? Messianism is they were not here with Herod's descendants, but um, I mean, Messianism is on the rise. The other is the sort of radical religious political camp, which isn't Messianic per se, but simply condemns Herod as a non-Jew on the throne who is basically a stooge for Roman power. Because it, that relates to the Messianic, but it's not quite the same. And when those two intersect, that fourth group of the zealots, if you're familiar, that, that Josephus talks about, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the zealots. We haven't gotten to the zealots yet. We'll see at the end of Herod's reign, they'll pop up. Okay, so that's basically the picture of the kingdom he's holding. Incredibly strong, as big as the Hasmonean king might have, at certain point, depending on which historian you believe, might have actually gotten larger. Balanced in its military power, because he's got both the Judean core and the Hellenized periphery, and he uses his political power and the military power. He even brings in I love it. 500 mounted archers, Jews from Babel. This is like one of those things that you teach kids in, in like middle school, right? That, that Babylonian Jews were famous as mounted archers. I, I listen. Um, it's just a funny image. So in, in the last few minutes here, I'm going to just point to two major building projects that really define the tension within not only Herod's kingdom, within his character. I'll lay them out in brief. And then next week when we finish up Herod and we Contrast him with Hillel, we'll probably hear a little bit more about them. Those two projects, one of which I'm sure you can guess, it's the temple, right? Um, they, they, Herod not only rebuilt Jerusalem, but he, of course, rebuilt the temple. And if you look, the Gemara in Sukkah says that anyone who hasn't seen the building of the second temple hasn't seen a, a beautiful building in his life. And it makes it clear. Abai says, according to Rav Chizda, that's the building of Herod. Right? If you remember that the second temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, way back at the beginning of Shibatiyam, return to Zion. But it was a humble affair. We even spoke about the fact that really it was the altar that the, that the early returnees, the B'nai Gola, that, you know, they were really worried about the altar. As the Judean kingdom became the Hasmonean kingdom, the Hasmoneans glorified the temple because, of course, their political and religious power centered around their rededication, hence the fact that it's the eighth night of Hanukkah. But it will be Herod who really transforms the Second Temple into one of the wonders of the ancient world. The Roman historian Pliny actually says that Jerusalem was the most famous city of the East, largely because of the scale of Herod's temple. Now, the, the project itself began in the year 20 before the Common Era, right? Um, but it, the temple wouldn't be completely finished for another 80 years, according to many historians. It was just one of those projects that just went on forever. Obviously, Herod was well dead by that. However, the first phase of the platform, and remember that today's Western Wall is one of the retaining walls 
for the platform that Herod built the temple on top of, right? He basically shaved the top off the mountain, built some retaining walls to dump the rubble in to build this huge platform. This was a style of ancient temples in the East to have this giant sort of like very awe-inspiring space that, that gave prominence to the building. Also, because he was not able to enter past the, the, you know, a certain level of the temple, he wanted the outside to go. And his Roman patrons, when they would come to visit and see the glory of the temple, they couldn't go past what was known as the chel. There was an outer uh, wall where non-Jews couldn't pass. Therefore, Herod built this very glorious outer enclosure so that all his Roman friends could enjoy what he'd done as well. Right? Um, the Jews were quite nervous that he would knock down the temple and, and not rebuild it. Um, therefore, he, he um, sort of gathered all of the materials he would need to do so and put them on site, basically as a proof that he was indeed going to do it. And he employed a thousand priests as masons and carpenters so that they could do the work within the holy precincts where, where people um, weren't able to enter. But they're still, even at the glory of the temple, which according to some, it took 10,000 men nearly a decade to build the platform alone, and then another year and a half to rebuild the temple on top of it. Yeah, there's some debate in terms of the sequencing here, but I just want you to have a sense of the scale, right? It won the hearts and minds of the average Judean because of the glory that it brought to their national sanction, sanctuary. But it raises a fundamental question, which is that whose glory was this house really built to achieve? Herod himself? God? I mean, on top of the gate of the new temple, he placed the golden eagle, which was a source of great controversy. The eagle was the symbol of Rome over the gate of the entrance to the temple. And Augustus Caesar paid the priests of the temple to sacrifice twice a day on behalf of himself, the Roman Senate, and the Roman people. Something which was acceptable according to Jewish law, but a questionable practice culturally. Right. So the question of what the temple really represents is going to simmer. And we'll come back to the story of it next week when we see about Hillel and, and the eventual breakdown of the Herodian kingdom. But it's contrasted with another building, which I'll just mention now because I only have three minutes left, which is Caesarea. Anybody, just by show of hands, people seen the ruins of Caesarea? Now, you have to understand. That Herod, it's often a mistake that people look at Herod's buildings, and especially people who have traveled a lot, they've been to Rome, and they think, wow, Herod really mastered the Roman style. You're wrong. The Romans learned from Herod. Right? The great Colosseum of Rome is built with the treasures from the looted temple, you know, a good 70 years after, 70, 80 years after Herod built Caesarea and the, and the amphitheaters and stadiums there. It's true he's copying Roman style because the capital already existed, etc. But I want you to understand that, that, Rome, that Herod was one of the great builders of late antiquity. He, he rebuilds the cave, the, the structure of the cave in Machpelah, if you've been to Hebron today. He builds the fortresses of Herodian and Masada. He built the major city of Sebastia. He went on building spree, but, but the port of Caesarea, according to most historians, was his great architectural achievement. Um, and we'll describe it a little bit more next week, but I just want to presented to you the way in which the sages understood it. Because on one hand, the sages said that anyone who hasn't seen Herod's temple hasn't seen a beautiful building in their, in their life. On the other hand, the sages taught in the Gemara and Megillah that, um, uh -oh, where is it? here it is, that Caesarea and Jerusalem are rivals. But these two cities represent two opposing forces. If one says to you that both are destroyed, don't believe them, say the sages. If he says that both are flourishing, don't believe them. He says that Caesarea is in waste and Jerusalem is flourishing, or Jerusalem is waste and Caesarea is flourishing, you may believe him. And it brings some proof text here. Now, why am I telling you this right here at the end? Because Herod has a dichotomy in his own personality. He's the king of Judea, but is he the king of the Jews? He builds the temple, but he's building, you know, pagan cities and 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 uh, you know, idolatrous you know, temples as, as well, right? He holds off Rome and protects his people, but he's a loyal client who enforces Roman rule, right? And Caesarea and Jerusalem are going to represent that dichotomy. And next week, when we come back to the end of the story, we'll visit the role in which Herod embodied this sort of tension in the mind of the rabbis and how to relate, not just to Rome, 
but even to the elements of what we might call Rome within ourselves. So I'm going to stop there for now because it's 9 o'clock. Appreciate everybody's attention. And the folks that are part of the Conversation Club can stick around. And everyone else should have a great week. Remember, I didn't get any questions here, but if you want to send me email, robmyfoyergmail.com, everybody's got it. Send me your thoughts, questions, things you want me to talk about next week. Don't touch that dial. In addition, of course, to thanking all the folks I need to thank, I want to invite you to become part of the new project on the horizon. The Jewish Heroism Project is going to be a chance to explore not just Jewish heroes, but the story of Jewish heroism, the qualities, the tools, the vision, and the ways in which our people have found to take a heroic stance on the challenges of life all throughout history. Stay tuned for the Jewish Heroism Project coming as a podcast. There'll be curricular work and there will even be a crowdfunding campaign to help you be part of making it happen. So keep your eye out. There's more where this came from.